Hello, everyone, and welcome to the M Pavilion. My name is Jennifer Zlinska, and I'm the associate producer of M Pavilion. Um, firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the Boonwurrung people, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathered, and pay my respects to their elders, both past and present. Um, today, or right now, is the fourth and final session of M Relay. Um, it's been made possible through the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation, whose general support has contributed to all the speakers who are joined here today. This final session is called Narrate, and it will be hosted by Karen McCartney. Karen McCartney is best known for her work in the world of interiors, architecture, and design. In Australia, she was editor of both Marie Claire Lifestyle and launch editor of Inside Out, a magazine she ran for 10 years. She's now editorial director at Temple and Webster. As part of this session, we have with us Eric Chen, Eric is the lead curator for design and architecture at West Kowloon Cultural Districts M Plus in Hong Kong. In addition to taking part in M Relay, he will also be speaking next Tuesday evening at 6.15, so I hope you can make it then to join us. We would also like to thank the Australian Copyright Agency who have made Eric Chen's visit to Australia possible through the Copyright Agency Cultural Fund. Over to you, Karen. Thank you. Thank you all for coming tonight and we're just so glad it's lovely and cool and there is a breeze and we're not melting so that's a great plus um as, as jennifer oh sure is that about is that better great um as, as jennifer said this is the fourth of four m relays so we've had a cultivate play pause and now we have narrate and so i I was saying to Robert earlier, the, the, the benefit of doing things like this is it makes you think about the topic, which is in our lives every day, but we don't necessarily bring it to the front of our brains. And as befits the complexity of the world that we're now in, it's both an easy and a difficult subject to tackle, because in my mind, we're effectively drowning in a world of narration. Stories are coming at us thick and fast, accurate stories, fake stories, entertaining and desperate ones, confusing stories, and we have to learn to navigate narration for ourselves. There are plenty of contradictions. We need to be open to the stories of others, but choose wisely who we listen to, while simultaneously not shutting ourselves off in a cul-de-sac of self-affirming beliefs. And we're <coughs> often preyed on commercially with narrative. I love this story that I'm about to tell you because I think marketing sometimes has hijacked the term. And I've grown to really loathe phrases that you come across in marketing meetings like let's unpick the narrative or have we nailed the narrative. So we live in this cult um, of creation of a backstory. Everything needs a backstory to suit a particular audience. So while we now have fake news, <coughs> we've also had fake chocolate with the narrative of a bean-to-bar artisanal chocolate makers who are actually melting down Valrona chocolate and giving it great designer packaging brought to you by good-looking Brooklyn hipsters. The narrative met the expectations in all but its essential truth. It was someone else's chocolate. Instinctively, I think our radar has become more acute as we look to voices that can both challenge and inform us, enrich our lives and our broader understanding of the world. That is why poignant individual stories can sometimes be actively suppressed, because stories touch people and have great power to shape us emotionally and to affect change. There are so many platforms for, for commu 
communicating narrative from the instant nature of social media right through to the permanency of buildings and cities. <coughs> Stories are the lifeblood of exhibitions, fashion, books, digital platforms, performance art, the plight of the homeless. The job the panel, uh, um, the job the panel undertake daily is, in a myriad of different ways, to create an emotional connection, a response, an empathy, and to lodge a new thought, a new understanding, a fresh visual experience in the minds of their respective audiences. In essence, to move the world on just a little bit. So hopefully tonight we will manage to do that. We have this tremendous lineup of talent, talent which will bring fascinating perspectives on what it is to narrate in the here and now. Now, many of you already know how M Relay works. I will interview Eric Chen first, and then he in turn will interview Candy, and so it will um, roll on. Now, <coughs> Jennifer, who introduced me, is a stickler for timekeeping, and she has full use of the bell. And that marks the time the baton will metaphorically be passed to the next speaker. So please um, help me welcome Eric Chen for the first session. Thank you, Karen. I'm just going to have a little sip of rosé to help with the cough. Oh, it's really medicinal. That's right. That would, that would, I know you're doing it for politeness only. Um, so I was fascinated to read about your new curatorial role at, at M+. Do you want to just explain a bit about what it is you do there? Yeah, sure. So um, I, I work at a museum called M+, which is uh, under construction now. Uh, it, it hasn't opened yet, so uh, uh, and, and no relation to M, M, uh, M Pavilion, uh, as, as, <laughs> as much as we'd, we'd like to be uh, associated with, 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 uh, with this great project. Um, it's a museum for visual culture, we call it, which encompasses, uh, in our um, way of telling it, uh, visual art, design and architecture, which is the area that I look after uh, with, with, uh, with colleagues, and uh, moving image. And it's 20th and 21st century, uh, global from an Asian perspective, which we can uh, talk about you know, what that means uh, a, a, a little more later. Sure. But. And I first was interested in your um, personal creative process because you have worked across a number of different creative disciplines. Um, and I wonder, do you have common traits to to storytelling that you can identify across these disciplines, or is each one distinct? Is that a very tricky question? Yeah, no, no. I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I think I think it's a really good question, and, and and in this case, it's really interesting that you're asking me this question as a as a uh, as a writer yourself mm. and and editor and and, and journalist. Uh, I was just having uh, drinks last night, uh, dinner last night with uh, Evan McEwen from uh, yeah. the National Gallery of, of Victoria, who's also a design curator uh, here. And uh, we were talking about how, uh, how, how odd it is that almost so many design curators, especially, uh, come from journalism. Mm. Uh, we all worked at magazines. We all wrote for different publications. And uh, it, it, I, I think it's made me at least realize how similar uh, curating and, and writing uh, are. I mean, uh, it, it, in, in that they are fundamentally about about narration, I mean, uh, and hopefully, hopefully, uh, a, a kind of informed uh, narration in the sense that your job, e either as a journalist or as a curator, is to basically go out uh, with an open mind and and see as much as you can, 
make judgments, sort of distill what you see, and then communicate it to uh, a, a broader audience. So that's exactly my next question. You know, it is about exercising judgments. And when you, because um, I looked up your next, your first exhibition, which is to open. When, when does the, the um, stillness? Um, Oh, well, we, we've, we've done a few uh, uh, sort of roving exhibitions. Okay, uh, so in, you in had practice, yes. Yeah, and, and, and that's been part of the, <laughs> the, 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 uh, the intention of, of these exhibitions, is to give us sort of practice. And, yes. And, and so what I was wondering is, you know, you, how you choose an object, is it for its form, or does the context or the journey of the maker, does that need, need to resonate alongside the object itself? Yeah, I, I, this, this is, I'm going to give you a very wishy-washy answer, <laughs> uh, which is uh, we basically choose things based on one simple criteria is does it do what it's supposed to do, whatever it is that it's supposed to do uh, well. I mean, I, I, I think uh, in, our, uh, in our way of, of, of curating, we look at, or at least in terms of building a collection, because we are building a permanent collection, um, it's about uh, sort of looking at the thing, whether it's an object or not, actually, because mm -hmm. oftentimes it's not an object. Mm. Uh, on its own terms, like what was the intention behind it, uh, what was the context in which it was created, uh, what are the sort of larger narratives and mm. and um, and networks of ideas and 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 in interactions that that it forms part of, and and uh, and so it's very much a case by case basis. Like I I I'm I'm very sort of hesitant uh, at uh, hesitant about. Uh, setting too many fixed criteria because yes, I, I think exactly. we get lost in that uh, do, do, easily. Do you become interested as well in the dynamic between those choices? Do, I mean do the objects ever have a, do they ever speak to each other or is it that they have the singular power to communicate themselves? Uh, hopefully both because mm. right? I mean the, the, the singular power of an object often or of a thing or uh, often resides in uh, how well it speaks to things around it, you know, yes. whether physically around it or, or sort of more conceptually mm. uh, around it. I, I, I know I'm being very vague and abstract here, but, uh, but that is sort of how, we, uh, how yes. we tend to approach things. Yes, because I mean, in a way, it, you design objects, it's a vast, you have this vast array of things to sort of choose from in a way. So yeah. with it comes quite a lot of responsibility about, about those choices and, and in a way the attendant stories that you you, you tell and that's what I was also interested in is how you uh, you know people are very visually literate these days how do you take those objects and, and what are the ways in which you display things and tell the story that's different from what's gone before yeah no, that that's a good question um well, I think, uh, first of all, I think you're absolutely right. One of the things that's really great about design, uh, especially right now, and design curating right now, is that uh, the, the kind of parameters and definitions and roles of design have expanded enormously, uh, enormously right? Like, uh, you asked, uh, you, if you ask 20 people how they define design, you'll, 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 get, you'll get 20 different answers. Mm. And, and so it has this amazing openness uh, to it that allows you to, you to explore any, any number of ideas and, and positions and arguments uh, from any number of, of, mm. of, of vantage points. Now, uh, it's funny, I, I was just doing an in interview recently uh, kind of about this topic, and um, I think the way you approach objects in relationship to other things it kind of depends on whether you're talking about building a permanent collection for a museum, which yes. has sort of a bigger picture, yep. kind of, you know, uh, preserving the patrimony of humankind, kind mm -hmm. of uh, 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 grandiose, um, 
thing or or actually curating a, a specific uh, display or, or, or exhibition. So yes. um, in terms of our collection, because um, the, the, the museum is a very ambitious project. I mean, just the size of the building is pretty big. I mean, it, it'll be about, it'll be physically the size of, of MoMA, let's say, in, in New York, and the remit is quite big. Global museum, mm. you know, from an Asian perspective. That, that uh, is great for me as a curator, because that kind of opens things up and, and gives me an excuse to kind of do, uh, do a, a wide range of things. Mm. So uh, when it comes to building a, a collection, uh, I, I think we can be very uh, comfortable knowing that we're starting a collection that has no end. And yes. so what we're doing is laying stakes and that we can just sort of um, be a little bit more, uh, more flexible with, with, mm. with, with how we approach it. Now, when we talk about doing an exhibition, let's say, mm. then you want to bring more clarity and focus to... Um, to how things are, are, are presented and, and, and you and do told. Re rely a lot on your collaborators that like your design the people who do the, the, the visual the actual design and so forth because in a way um, you know you've set yourself up the title is that it's you know a, um, visual is in the title of the museum and so you really have got to reinvent the experience, the engagement as well. It can't be just in the old style of, you know, here's an object, here's a, um, some information about it. You know, there is a kind of onus to take the, that level of engagement to a whole new level. Yeah, mm. no, uh, ab uh, absolutely. I mean, mm. I, I think the, the, the role of the museum has changed a lot, you know, in, in, mm. in, in, in the past, well, few decades even it's 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 funny the the, the role of the museum is sort of perpetually uh, evolving and it's yes. perpetually evolving in the same direction um, I mean we, we, we we've been talking about museums as sort of uh, uh, places of sort of more social exchange and and, and 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 education and now learning interpretation I think are the more, yes. more fashionable terms uh, as opposed to the historical role of the museum which was more connoisseurial you know mm. and, and conservation and, and preserving masterpieces let, let's say for um, for a, 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 a more select few now this kind of discourse has been going on for you know mm. shifting away from that has been going on for for a long time, but I think that that kind of weight of, of what museums were is, is so heavy that uh, that we yes. still haven't quite quite broken free. But that makes it exciting too, doesn't it? That you have yeah. this ability to, to you know, you're, you're charged to do this, and then you can explore ways in which to do it. I was also interested in um, your book, you know, Brazil, that you launched last year, Brazilian Modern, the Rediscovery of 20th Century Brazilian Furniture. And I was thinking, you know, you're in this very contemporary world, you're telling stories through, um, you know, through exhibitions and digital. Why a book? Why did you feel it was good to do something in a printed format? Oh. Um. I don't know, because they asked me to. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I know I that feeling, like books <laughs> yes. And, and books still have a role, and people still... Uh, and it looks beautiful. ...read them, and... Yeah, yes. and, and uh, but, but I think maybe it's uh, stepping... Um, uh, going a step further from, uh, from your question, and, and, and also, but still relating to the idea of narration, what, what drew me to the topic of... Because uh, I was actually asked to write about uh, Brazilian modern design, uh, tw 20th century... Uh, uh, and, and, and what, what drew me to that topic, and what drew, drew me to M plus actually, is this idea of sort of re-narrating uh, design histories. And I guess that's probably what, mm. what I'll talk about Tuesday when, uh, when I'm here. But uh, it's, it's this idea that we, we, we take what we know about almost anything, but, but uh, in, in this case, design and design history and the narratives um, that were taught uh, for granted. But, but, but those narratives have, have, have often sort of arisen from a certain vantage points, usually in the US or, or, or um, 
or, or Europe. Mm. And so uh, when, when I was asked to do this Brazil uh, story, uh, this book on, on, on Brazilian uh, modernist design, I was like, well, can we re you know, rethink modernism, but from the vantage point, you know, yes. uh, as much as I can, you, through empathy, uh, maybe, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm not Brazilian, um, but, but can we re revisit the story of, of, of modernism, but, uh, but from, uh, from the perspective of how, of, 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 of Brazil and the designers that were working um, in, in Brazil mm. in the 50s and 60s, uh, especially. And that's kind of what we're doing with, uh, basically, just sort of shifting the framework. So you're, you're putting what was in the background at the foreground, uh, and, and, and yes. vice versa. And then that's kind of what we're trying to do with, with M plus two. I mean, we're, we're trying to tell the narratives of design and architecture uh, and, and art and, and, and moving image, um, tell narratives uh, in, uh, in Asia and, and, and between different parts of Asia, uh, narratives that haven't been told so, yes. so often, but we're also at the same time trying to revisit global narratives you know, uh, from a different perspective, which is the perspective where the museum is, which is Hong Kong, China, East Asia, Asia. Um, I think those are two very strong premises, aren't they? To, to kind of look at things that are little known and shine a light on them, and then things that are well known but look at them differently. And yeah, that's yeah. almost at the core. And then so when you a book comes your way, you can apply that same criteria and kind of shift it round and do something that suits how you want to work. Yeah, well, I, I think just uh, forcing oneself to look at things from different perspectives just, mm. I think, leads to... Uh, one having a much richer uh, yes. experience of the world, and, and and I think that's what we're trying to to share uh, with mm. with the museum or through various other projects like. I think like they're the book. telling us yeah. we're done. Okay, so well, I'm thank you. I'm going to leave you to your beer, <laughs> yeah. and um, Candy's up next. <laughs> Great, thank you, Karen. Right on. Thanks. So hi, Ken. An assumption. <laughs> I'm just joking. I noticed the scotch. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. Yeah, so we just met, uh, and and I, I I'm just going to start by asking Candy to describe herself, because 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 she still confuses me. <laughs> <laughs> That's very positive. Um, describe myself. I like to say I'm a black radical intersectional feminist dreamer. And well, you're Blasian. <laughs> well, you know, specifically, yeah, multiracial, so Blasian, part black, part Asian, a little bit Caucasian, yeah. <laughs> um, and um, so I've grown up in Australia. I probably identify most, I guess, with an Afro-diasporic kind of connection, but in saying that my mum grew up quite Chinese, so what are you going to do? Um, I do order at Chinatown sometimes, and they say, you order like Chinese, and I'm like, I, because I am, I don't know if Benjamin Law's going to give me a, a role on family law anytime soon, but I would be allowed to be on that show. Um, I'm also part Indian and um, German and Dutch, and I make... Um, Radical Feminist Theatre, uh, hip-hop and spoken word theatre. I have a show that just won a big award in Edinburgh um, called Hot Brown Honey that's got heading to New Zealand and then touring the world uh, with six women of colour in it. And we won the Experimentation and Innovation of the Form Award, which I thought would be good, you know, because you're an architect shit. <laughs> and, um, and that's the third award I've won with, with innovation 
in the title. So I can only assume that being a black woman is an innovation on being a white man. Um, because I guess I just make things that, that excite me and my community. So for me, I studied uh, to be a classic actor at NIDA. And, um, and I was like, when's the beat going to drop? The kids are really falling asleep in the front row. We need to make stuff that, that actually engages them. And um, so I kind of went on that. I've gone on that trip with most of the work I've done. Yeah. So you used to describe yourself as a black woman, but you said that. You, um, but but obviously your 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 background is a bit more of a a potpourri. <laughs> yes. Let's say. Yeah. Well, you know, Dutch colonization. What you gonna do? <laughs> But I mean, at, at, at what point did you uh, first remember, remember thinking of yourself as a black woman uh, versus uh, something else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or is, was that narrated for, narrated for you or is that your own sort of narration of yourself? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I've always kind of had a really solid identity as, as an African woman because my parents came from South Africa and that was a narrative that was deep within us and their lives there. It only dawned on me that we had Indian and Chinese on us. Actually, when my mother told me she had a Chinese name as well and I was like, why? And um, it's quite hard because you kind of go, what is my nationality then? Who am I? You know, what's my ethnicity? Oh, that's why we always ate pork and fried rice. Wait on, what? And actually, the first time reading a South African play was when I went, wow, other people's parents are as weird as my parents. I just thought I was the weirdo in the neighbourhood. Um, and, you know, I could read clicks, like, means you're in trouble. <laughs> means you're not as in trouble, you know? So, these things come from our Kwanzaa side of the family. And it's like, oh, everybody's parents doesn't don't use clicks to discipline them. So this is something that's hard because you don't know what you're in comparison to um, without, I think, involving yourself in art and, and seeking outside of yourself, you know. Um, my mum's particular love for the sequin. We went to Singapore and I was like, okay, these are my people, you know. Um, there's definitely aesthetics and trends that I, that I really love and then I can't deny I grew up um, in Australia. So you kind of get told you're different straight away, you know, and you work really hard not to be different. You want to be Australian, you know, um, but you get told pretty much at <laughs> the first comprehension point that you are black, um, so, yeah, I'm sure that I was told I was black even before I could comprehend it. Well, maybe, you know, I, I, I guess just, just uh, listening to you now, maybe you think of, of, of my own experience, you know, uh, growing up uh, Asian or Chinese uh, in, 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 in the U.S. I mean, I'm, I mean, to what extent, like obviously identity and, and, and difference and so on and so forth are, are things to be, um, you know, are, are things that are very important to people and, 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 and they should be celebrated. But also, uh, but a, a lot of times these conversations will sort of come from a, 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 a place of sort of a feeling of, of, of alienation or, or, or exclusion. Um, I mean, at, at, at what point do you think talking about difference maybe backfires uh, or, or, or reinforces them. And, and, and I guess this also has something to do with the, the current situation now um, in much of the world where sort of li li uh, liberalism uh, is, has, has not been, been doing very well and, and, uh, <laughs> and there's been a kind of backlash against political correctness and, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I, right, I right. Over-assertion of identity and difference. 
No way. I think alt-right people and white supremacists are, th that's what they are. Sure. Like, I don't think, it, you know, any type of um, action going on, Black Lives Matter, any of that makes somebody more scared. I think it's in them. I think there is definitely a, a, a stream of folks that are like the, you know, who am I going to vote for, folks, that could go either way. But I think people who don't believe in equality and humanity are not going to, um, you know, get more racist because somebody stands up and, and you know, kind of stands up for themselves and their identity. I think that sometimes, on the other hand, what happens when we don't talk about it is it becomes the elephant in the room and then um, it's almost like we're, we're pretending that... Um, this construction of race and colour hasn't shaped most of our lives, you know. I would love to transcend that stuff, but I'm certainly not going to assimilate. So for me, I don't think transcension is, is yet being achieved. Right. And I think the alternative is assimilation. And that's what I see a lot. So, you know, I, I work in this precinct a bit, but I'm constantly the only black woman in the building. It's pretty hard to not think, gee, I'm the only black woman in a building, Melbourne Theatre Company. You know, um, if I, I think I would be a crazy person not to think that, you know. The idea for me that the arts uh, are not shifting with the world is, um, is a painful one, you know. And I really do believe that, as in the case with, um, with log jams, Gentle approaches, for, you know, finessing doesn't work. You actually need dynamite to blow that shit up. And um, in my experience of almost 20 years, that's the only thing that's made shifts happen. It has like the sort of, I mean, not cl clearly not everyone who voted for Trump. I, I don't know, this, 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 this is my first time in Australia, so I, I, I yeah. can't speak to this. We again. are aware, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of, of the situation. <laughs> But, uh, I mean, not everyone who voted for Trump is a white supremacist, obviously. Sure. And, I, and I'm just wondering, those of us who, you know, share more sort of liberal uh, ideals and, and values, if, if we ought to be rethinking, you know, uh, uh, how, we, how we communicate those. Because, um, I mean, do you, in the work that you do, I mean, do you, do you often feel like you're, you're, you're sort of speaking to, speak, uh, preaching to the choir? Uh, or, it's impossible or for me to speak to that choir because that choir hasn't been invited into these buildings very often. Right. So I, like I opened Straight White Men by Young Jean Lee at Melbourne, um, uh, sorry, at the Arts Centre by saying good evening bitches. And for me, it was really important because what I was doing with what the playwright wanted is to disturb the comfortable. So I played some Kia, you know what I'm saying? My neck, my back, you know. And as people that are used to maybe, you know, being in a kind of more operatic mode or classical music mode, as they came in, and a lot of them asked me to turn it down. And the point was, this is a place where you feel comfortable. Uh, now, all of my friends came in and were like, thank God for this music because there's no one like me in the room, right? And so what we get to say is actually the world's for all of us. It's not just for those folks that feel comfortable walking into that building. And that's where I think the really exciting stuff starts to happen because, um, you know, I, I just really see how, how much these systems have actually squashed and erased so many people that, you know, 
could have been uh, visible and, and, and heard. And as I was explaining to you, we don't have the same, um, you know, plethora of, of poets and playwrights and actors and folks yet in Australia. I mean, since the Victoria's Premier Literary Award, we've got a few more. But, like, it's, it's really new for us. So we're at that time where we're kind of needing to shake down systems and um, claim our space, you know? Do you think there's progress? Because, I mean, I, I was just at the national, the NGV Australia uh, this afternoon, and, and there was a great show called Who's Afraid of Colour? Yeah. Uh, of, of women... Uh, uh, women artists of uh, what's the correct term here? Do you use First Aboriginal Nations women, Aboriginal, First Nations? Sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah. 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 It, was, it, it was a beautiful show and and, and really eye opening. I mean, do you are, are there enough of those? Um, uh, I, I think, or, or or what do you think of those kinds of? I efforts? think when a show like that's curated yeah. by a black woman, then I'll be like, we're doing it. Do you know what I mean? We need to see artistic directors, directors, curators and people on boards. I think there's a big fad and trend for faces, but it's not necessarily power, is it? It's not necessarily people in the positions that could shift culture or shift the paradigm and even take us to new untold kind of, you know, spaces for art and visual storytelling. So it's a matter of who's doing the narration and uh, and for whom. I've got to say, since the beginning of time, we've had white folks curate and cast, you know, the all-Negro review or what have you. So the real change is going to be when we see the power structure shift. So uh, more power to you. <laughs> <laughs> is, are, are, are we... Uh, oh. Yeah, uh, 20 seconds. <laughs> That's it. Thank you, Candy. Do I like go to this seat now, or are you just gonna? Yeah, I think you stay there. Oh yeah. Please welcome <laughs> Lisa Radford to the stage, ladies and gentlemen. I really needed to take your class to do this interview properly because there is just so much about your. Um, work. Um, oh, quickly start by um, a couple of lines, I guess, about what you do. You're a writer and an artist. Yep. 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 And I teach across the road. Yeah. Yeah. And you come from Western Sydney or you just made work in the, over there? No, no, no. I, I grew up in Coburg. Oh, yeah. <laughs> down the road, but I went to Western Sydney to um, work with some kids from Kusula. Great. That's like a couple, an hour out from where I grew up. That's why I was ah, wondering. cool. I'm from Western Sydney. Um, so... I'm going to just head straight into the heart of stuff and you can like go and down a rabbit hole uh, about Lisa online later. But some of the things um, I'm really interested in, in is how you talk about um, art as a performance and how the audience yourself and the artwork are all players in a script. Mm -hmm. I was really interested in that and your... Um, the idea of field work because I did study at NIDA and I know all about <laughs> building character and um, I played a lot of different characters last year, even a Dutchman. Um, so, so can you tell me a little bit more about the, that um, relationship that you see regarding how you use, I guess, theatre as an allegory for your work? Um, well, that's kind of really interesting because you probably definitely know much more about theatre than I do because I studied painting. Yeah. Um, but I guess I became interested in what artworks, if they were people, and I put an exhibition on them, I put them on a stage, and I was like, what if they're people, what do they say? 
and how do I find that out? Or maybe I know and that's not interesting. So you're asking me what about this idea of audience or... So I guess I was giving over, like, you go, here's this thing, tell me what it's saying to you. Um, and I just went to Casula. Casula owned one of the artworks yeah. that was in the exhibition, so I went there to work with them. But I guess it be, it starts because I never think that I'm an artist. So if I'm not an artist, artist, artist <laughs> and I'm always the audience, and then as the audience, what am I making? So even when I paint paintings, they're bus seats. So they already exist. I don't make – I'm not making something new. Yeah. I kind of – it's kind of like what – what does it do when it's put with something else? What does it say? How does it exist? And so for that exhibition, which I think – I feel like you're, you've researched. Yeah, yeah. Which is scary. But <laughs> um, I kind of worked with these kids and generated all this text and dialogue and there was lots of politics in it because it's Western Sydney. Yeah. <laughs> um, which I, you know, kind of identified with a little bit because that's what Coburg was like maybe in the 80s when I was growing up. Um, and so it was really feisty and those artworks were – like one was a painting by Amanda Marburg, which was a painting of a woman masturbating, but it was – it's made from um, plasticine. Mm. So Veronica is this like young first gen uh, Spanish. <laughs> she was like beautiful, so mm. she turned this um, painting into this pussy power fighting character, which then I gave over to these actors who kind of interpreted it and were bouncing around the room talking to <laughs> audience members, but like they were zombies. So it was, became quite confronting. So everything kept being flipped over and backwards and forwards. And it was in a gallery, so there was no stage. So the, I was lucky, I think. So where does, I guess, because um, I, I don't know a lot, I enjoy the visual arts, but where does live art and visual arts end? I guess we're talking definitions again, yeah. but what do you think about that? Um, I guess I don't, I, don't, I don't know, and I guess that's why I tried to do this. And I worked with Northern Theatre Company, which were based in Moreland, because I didn't know. Mm. And so um, Anne Jarabatsis and Teresa Noble agreed from a stupid email to work with me so they kind of helped me work through this and there were rather than know what it was it was more like I knew what I didn't want it to be like I didn't want it to be alienating to an audience or self-indulgent I wanted there to be some kind of exchange possible yeah I didn't want it to be theatrical or something um, <laughs> yeah I yeah wanted it still to be read as like a painting if possible like can I make a piece of theatre that's like a painting and I guess I'm interested then in um, how you look at field work. And I know you were talking f about like from an anthropological kind of background, mm. field work is vitally important, but you were kind of like, ah, oh, <laughs> they spend six years, you know, and all that kind of thing. So, because when I think about uh, playing a role, I'll do a lot of research. I'll research every single person who's played it and I'm always going to know I'm going to put my thumbprint on it and it's going to be different. But I get really worried when I'm writing a play mm. that I don't do too much of it so it doesn't actually encroach on my art making and my own ideas. Like, yeah, yeah. obviously knowing that every single idea is encroached upon, but I don't, like at the moment I'm making a show called One the Bear and I was like, how far do I go with the bear research? It's mm. like you know, so wonderful and, oh, the kids aren't going to get it. Are they even going to understand boars and sows? You know, like, so So I worry about that. Do you ever worry that the research or is the research kind of a part of your art making? Yeah, I guess 
So like with the work that you're kind of referring to, this Dear Masada work that I recently did, I kind of gave everything away. Like I didn't write any of it. So all of the text and dialogue was generated in conversations. And it was more, I think when we were rehearsing, a friend of mine, she was my live soundtrack, she was a voice artist. Um, she said, you're, being, you're, like, you're making music. You're, you're, this is composition. So I guess like when you're painting, you kind of go like this and things come forwards and backwards and you can erase them and... Um, bring them back if you need to because it's a painting and I kind of was treating that the same way so that that arrangement maybe okay was, yeah was, you were an arranger yeah 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 yeah, like yeah collaging people or something which sounds awful <laughs> <laughs> um I find it really interesting you when you were talking about the slippage of identity as well mm. so this concept that say an artist starts out and they're poor and they're from a certain class and then they make a bit of money on their art and they're no longer from that class and they maybe move into a nicer locale you know and they're surrounded by different people and they're buying organic and all that kind of stuff <laughs> so um I'm really interested in that age you know like coming from you know the different age ranges as you move through it mm. and you stick around in the arts how have you found that and when you reflect back is it is it cringeworthy or is it exciting still or how how do you feel I don't know it's a really good question I think it goes back to it's Arik is that right yeah Talking about like that ownership, uh, uh, where do you speak from, like, and who owns the narrative, and I guess maybe always being conscious of that, and that I'm interested in. I guess because I did grow up in like Coteberg, pretty working class suburb, and then what happens now? Like just this week, I started a lecturing position at the university, you know, the VCA, mm. and like. And I've moved to East Melbourne, so yeah, exactly yeah. what you just said. Like, there's, an, there's an elitism, are you? Because uh, I'm very uncomfortable in it. Like, yeah. I'm uncomfortable when I come into my dressing room and there are like perfume and chocolates from people I've never met, and and I have to go. I'm like, what part of me? I mean, I'm a bit different. It's like, what part of me do you own now? You know? Well, I have the same questions. I think. Yeah. And I mean, when I, I, I went for a job recently, I said you can't swear because I tend to say fuck a lot. <laughs> it's in a similar way, maybe yeah. the way you say bitches. Yeah, yeah. I, hosted forums and I had to a yeah. language warning every yeah, yeah. time. And I feel oh, but like the meta referencing <laughs> is hilarious. <laughs> Calling like middle class white folks that have a lot of money bitches is essentially <laughs> the best joke that happened on stage last year, right? <laughs> yeah, I find that I find that really interesting and it's almost like yeah, it's all like the first album like Ed Sheeran or someone, you know, is like the hard times you've spent on the streets and the second album's all about women that were betrayed you that were fake. <laughs> you know, it's like oh Eminem's the same you know, like it's yeah, all yeah, like, yeah. oh now you're just writing albums about the industry and yeah. they're nowhere near as interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good question because I don't know the answer to it. I'm just really conscious of it. Like mm. what and I guess it was always like I could make bus seat paintings because I fucking caught the bus and the train to work in Wonturna where I taught for like five years and I stared at that fucking <laughs> those seats and those buses yeah. for five years and, and the people in them. So it was like this is what I can speak through. This isn't – I'm not choosing it because it's class. I'm choosing it because it's what I speak through. Yeah. So then to go to Kasula, I was really conscious of like not presenting their personal stories because that's not my job, but making these workshops where that could possibly come out and always confirming that that was okay, that we use their words in this way, that they can be rearranged in this way. Yeah. So as a curator then, mm. and it's something I heard in one of your lectures too, you said um, sorry, I know I thought if anybody did this to me, I'd be terrified. But um, 
I found the term really interesting. You said, and the political is negotiated. So I'm really interested in that in the space of what you make and curating other artists. So um, because I, I spoke with a really amazing, some Native American elders and they were saying some of some things you need to keep for yourself, mm. right? Yeah. It, it's thoroughly political, but it's not something to share. Yeah. And you decide, each artist decides what, what they give and what they don't give. Yeah. But what did you mean by that? The political is negotiated, do you think? Um, I guess because I, either because I... Um lazy or I don't know like I really like working with other people I guess what's what I'm jealous about with theatre like it's just innate collaborative yeah yeah. um and so to work with people immediately you are immediately involved in that space so and in order and I guess because I've worked as a teacher in so many different capacities whether it's like primary school or in you know in Japan or you know here I'm always encountering someone different to me like small to large and so how do we find a space that we can share which spaces are our own what bits can we make work about together it's funny you said that because recently I had a falling out with a woman who's a very similar demographic to me in the arts and then I thought to myself hang on am I being racist that I thought we should be friends (laughs) like isn't that actually racist to think just because we share some things that are the same, those things might mean a lot to one and not much to others. So I, I always love that kind of unpacking process, un, yeah, unwinding process. But I believe it's the end of the talk. <laughs> and um, next, Sam Cooney. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Candice. Candy, Candy. Hi. Hi. Hi, Sam. Um, We met about like two minutes ago. There's another Sam over there. (laughs) Sorry. Um, uh, And I think I said to Sam that I hadn't had a lot of time because I just said that I moved house this week that to research him. But I did. I was aware of a magazine that he founded. No. No edits. To start there. No. I uh, took over from a friend of mine five years ago. Yeah. Right. And how did that come about? Uh, so, it's a magazine called The Lifted Brow. It's a literary magazine, but yep. I say that with Trumpian quotation marks because um, because we like to think of ourselves as fitting in with that category and acting the complete opposite of most literary journals and magazines that are historically known as being quite boring and mainstream and narrow. So, it's a, um, it's a journal that comes out four times a year in print uh, and uh, it started in Brisbane ten years ago this year. Oh by a friend of mine named Ronnie Scott, who's a writer, and after five years of running it, um, he was just, it's a, volu- it's a totally, totally volunteer-run organisation, and he was just uh, totally out of energy, and, and I was helping out at the time, and, uh, and he said, do you want this thing? And I said, no, I don't. Um, you look, look, look at you, look at the state of your life. Why would I want to do that? <laughs> I'm going to be the next great Australian novelist, and uh, see you later. And then within two weeks, I'd done a 180, and after speaking to a few friends and realising that I care deeply about this thing, and that... Um, actually took me a while to get there, but I thought that perhaps I was the right person to take over and that I could do some, you know, standing on the shoulder of him as a, as a giant and, uh, and do some new things with it. And yeah, it's worked out so far. And like in terms of, I guess I'm kind of interested in it because I'm probably narcissistic, but, um, that, that you've wanted to do it because like, what was the impetus and does it, because I know, also know that you're a lecturer, I think. Yeah. Well, is there like an overlapping narrative <laughs> or something? Between the different jobs that or I do? Be, or? Yeah, between the desire to engage in those two different things. Um, I teach at universities to make money yep. um, because I don't make any money 
except for the occasional project grant or, or, or something or, you know, um, speaking gig that I uh, get to do. But uh, if I could get paid a, a living wage or even a semi-living wage to Nutterbrow, I'd probably drop teaching because I, um, I love it, but it is very, very time-consuming and, um, and I don't ever want to do it anyway except to the best of my ability. Mm-hmm. And I've got to that stage before I'm getting close to being pushed for time and, and energy that I... And I don't want to be one of those lecturers or tutors who's very obviously not present. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I teach and... Uh, and it's because... And, and to answer your question, um, I, you know, I, I help make Lift a Brow and we also do books. I do all kinds of different things as well as teaching. They all come back to the fact that I care about which stories are out in the world and um, and who's telling them and the quality of those stories and... Uh, and you know, I found that my abilities to help broadcast other stories were um, uh, much better than probably the fact that better than the uh, my abilities to to write and tell my own. So I'll probably be a lifelong um, coming to terms with that. But uh, one day I'm thinking, one day I'll I'll write that great Australian novel. <laughs> but uh, it might be done by a computer algorithm in sixty years' time when I'm on my deathbed and yeah, can suck whatever's in my brain. And because uh, I can't imagine ever not um, doing what I do yep. and having the time, but, yeah. Um, in terms of that, just um, the need to have that dialogue or discourse about literature, mm-hmm. I guess I've noticed, like, one of my big bugbears... See, I'm really narcissistic. Um, <laughs> is that, like, arts... Um, local arts representation in popular press has kind of disappeared in the last year or so. Mm-hmm. Um and wondered, I also was thinking, when I was thinking about what you do, that Jan Verwert says this thing that all writers are liars, mm-hmm. which I'm kind of interested in, yep. and that you brought up Trump, and he likes ultimate yeah. facts. And I was just thinking about, like, all those different, <laughs> those three different things as, like, parallel narratives. This is what I do. Yep. <laughs> I don't do linear ones. Um, yep. In terms of, like, like, those kind of three things that you do, like... Uh, like your lecturer, yep. maybe fact facts, yep, sure. literature, all writers are liars. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, just wondered. And Trump. Yeah. <laughs> um, all writers are liars or, oh, I don't know if I can, uh, I'm on both sides and, and the middle of the fence on that one. Um, I don't really care whether, you know, it depends on the type of writing, it depends on the circumstance, it's such a contextual uh, matter. Mm-hmm. Um I can tell you that all editors are liars and that's deliberate because we have to constantly be working with writers who are unreliable and, and don't know what deadlines really mean. So I spend half of my time telling writers lies about when their deadlines are just so <laughs> I know they're going to come back to me and be like, oh, you know, I need another week. And I'll be like, no, okay. But knowing that I have two weeks built in with them because, uh, because they're a writer. Because I'm a writer and I know exactly what it's like. Um, but as far as, uh, oh, you know, I, I could try and do that undergrad sweeping statement about real truth and lies don't mean any mean anything but I've seen enough like white undergrad dudes do that and I don't need to be another um white dude on stage trying to pretend he knows what he what what difference between truth and fact and 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 everything like that I just um I'm most interested in working with writers and and stories that uh that are alive um whether it's in print whether it's you know, I, I consider that I work with text, but text might end up having the final outcome of video or audio or, or anything else. Um, I'm interested in people who are um, mining 
you know, the truth of their being in the world. And, and that might mean that, like, if they're a, a liar, that it might mean that their truth of their story is being a total um, jerk and, uh, and, and fucking people over and lying. And, and then that might be really interesting because everyone's experienced that. So I don't really yeah, have much concern about whether something is um, a lie, but it's more about whether it's, it feels like it's a, a lived or true experience of that. Yeah. Now answers your question, but... Yeah. I guess I was interested in the statement because it was like the more we employ language, the more of a conceit there is or something yeah. like some kind of like slow deceit. Well, like writers are, um, they can get caught up in the fact that they've got a, they've, they've built themselves a skill or they've got a natural talent and then they've built upon that yeah. to be able to obfuscate and that can be an issue. Mm. I'm interested in transparency and yeah. that's like across the board. Like I'm interested in transparency with the magazine and the industry and I feel like there's a huge gulf in probably everywhere but in the publishing industry between authors in the industry and there's always this, the publishers want to keep this magic kind of curtain up that no one knows how books are made but this must be a magic and like no one knows who gets paid what and no one knows how many fucking books got pulped last year and how many books like didn't sell and how many authors did sell and they probably shouldn't have and I'm interested in laying all that out because um because I think it's kind of gets in the way of the most important part of the work which is like I said the storytelling and the sharing and the social experience of of reading yeah. um I'm a, maybe an outlier and I do annoy people we um our latest issue of The Lift of Brow was called The Capital Issue. We recorded every single hour that went into it from both the volunteer staff and every author yeah. and artist. Yep. And then recorded every single dollar that went into the production of it, um, anything related, and then published a ledger in the middle of the issue that laid that out, which was like a shock to us and a shock to the readers in good and bad ways. But we had, um, I had printers and distributors calling me up saying, that's confidential information, you shouldn't print that. And it's like, oh, well, we did, sorry. Like... And I, I wish it was more deliberate. It was more that the fact that my brain doesn't even think about confidential information because that's the $16,000 I give you every three months. I'm allowed to tell people I'm doing that. Like, Just beg the question, like, why a print bill is confidential. Yeah, well, like, because apparently there are other magazines who are not getting as good a deal as us and they're going to now come back and be like, hey, wait a second, Lift a Brow pays that? Well, I want that deal. And I didn't even know that we had a deal. But um, <laughs> anyway, like, this kind of obfuscation, this kind of non-transparency, it irks me. And so, again, I, I'm not doing it as some... You know, overtly political statement. I just, I don't really know how not what what is and what isn't confidential. Which means, that, you know, I'll never probably make it big in any um, giant publishing house, and that's actually fine because the experiences I've had with people who work at those places and get high up, um, it's as can be as toxic and gross as anywhere else. So, yeah, I'm more interested in being that rat bag on the outside, being like, you know, maybe a bit of just finger pointing and nudging people and making them uncomfortable a little bit. In terms of that transparency, I think we were talking before what I, I was kind of impressed with by, and I, I can't remember who the editor was at the time, was last year there was a bit of a... No, two years ago now, really, a year and a half ago. That was last year, yeah, last March year? last year, yeah. Yeah, right, there was a bit of controversy about one of the covers of your magazine. Yeah. Um, and lots of the debate, from what I could tell, went online in, in Facebook. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know if you wanted to maybe narrate that. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, Long story short, like the Lift of Brow, even though we try our hardest, is still a you know um, city-based, mostly white organisation, and we're constantly, constantly um, fixing that and trying to get better and better and better. And we published a um, an issue of the magazine that had a cover that was a Vegemite jar, but the artist who was a painter who changed the um, the label to um, to say. White Australia, what is, oh, now it's I'm blanking. History, yeah. White Australia has a black history with the, the craft exactly the same, but changed it, and uh, and had all these different meanings. And and um, 
I was no longer the editor of the magazine, so I kind of got word of this three days out from the print deadline when one of the editors who's a you know overworked, lovely human and just forgotten to kind of let me know that there was maybe something that I should know about. <laughs> like, here's this. So I spent a day on the phone to lawyers trying to make sure that A, that Kraft wasn't going to sue us, but also that um, B, like this was a white artist creating a, a statement about Indigenous peoples in this country and uh, and what was the statement, where was, what was her intention, um, you know, and like it turned out that we could stand fine behind it fully, but it was two days of discussion um, to figure that out. And then we were prepared and then there were a couple of artists and, you know, a couple of shit stirrers who had very good points that were about the fact that we were publishing this and maybe we were at the publication to say this and we, you know, we wanted conversations to be started and that's that can often be, you know, um, an ex, you know, a backdoor excuse for people to say, oh, the conversations are great so we can be controversial, but actual, we wanted these conversations to be had and um, because they were the conversations that we were often having behind closed doors or at bars and yeah, yeah. the same reason why we published The Capital Issue is that we were having these conversations of the relationship between money and art all the time and so if we can use the magazine to perhaps make it a larger conversation then we, we try. Yeah, so it was um, controversial. We've had a share of controversies but in a, such a small, boring, lit scene way that like I forget that four <laughs> people on Twitter is not the rest of the whole world, you know, like it can feel like it. If four people on Twitter are, are tagging you and having a go, yeah. it can feel like the rest of the world is just wanting to line you up against a wall. Um, I've learned how, um, yeah, how do you deal with that and, and also dealing with 25 odd volunteers at an organisation that mm. very different backgrounds and they're on different time zones and, and, uh, and how that works and, and how we make it democratic but also that we don't end up falling in a screaming heap. Yeah. How do you kind of manage that? I mean, because well, I'm we don't. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, we do. It's um, it's just time. It's screaming all the time. It's incredibly here. time consuming, and the reason why we keep doing it is it's always worthwhile, um, because we want to have we you know one we're not interested in this kind of top down like we're the most important thing about lifted brows. It's a commercial um, the commercial imperative is the lowest uh, imperative on our list if it even is on the list. Like the make the make, we make money. We do what we can to make money what we're doing what we already do yeah. so we can keep doing what we do. Um, and, you know, we have a quite a good trust across the, the staff that we're all in the same position and, um, and we're there doing it because it's important and, and uh, we, keep, we keep trying and then, people, and then the best thing about it is that people eventually move on and go off and do really important things in much higher places but they've taken the kind of experiences that we've been able to... Um, help them educate or train up, and and, and hopefully make you know a bit of a difference in in the world in in a good way. Yeah. Cool. Yep. Thanks. Thank you. All right. Hi everyone. <laughs> um, Lucy Adams. Oh, here we go. Proper crossing out. <laughs> no, you're right. Uh, hi, Lucy. How you going? I just wanted to um, myself just quickly acknowledge the traditional owners of the land as well, same as um, what Jen did, the, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, um, and that sovereignty was never ceded in this country. Um, now, Lucy, you, uh, everyone will have Lucy's bio in front of them, and I don't need to read that out, but do you want to just give her maybe a quick one-sentence description about what you do? Yeah, sure. I'm a, a, a lawyer who works for people who are homeless or at risk of it, and I've done that for about seven years. We're aiming to stop people slipping into homelessness and then once they have slipped into it, kind of wind back that really unrelentingly negative impact of the law on them. Cool. Not cool. Like, 
Cool. Not cool. <laughs> good, good one. Um, I, I specifically requested that we follow Candy Bowers because I always love following Candy and at these kind of events. Um, so I wanted to first ask you just quickly, and I want to spend most of the time, the 15 minutes, talking about the work you do, but just how did you find yourself? What was the drive? Was there an incident? Was there uh, was it a slow burn? How did you find yourself you know, becoming a, the most one of the most important voices in Victoria and probably the country of, of homeless homeless law and homeless issues which is it's a niche issue it is yeah. but um, um look it, it was a slow burn so there wasn't um there was I don't have a lived experience of homelessness I've had a a really lucky upbringing and I think it was more that um not silver spoon by any stretch but happy fun country upbringing you're a good public school uh and um, I think there was just some recognition that that was... I had a, a bunch of opportunities that came my way that a lot of people didn't have. And I wanted to, I don't know, use that in some way. But um, there's also the fact that the job is, is really great. So it's not kind of... Um, it's, I love it. I love going there every day. The people I meet, the people I work with. It's a picture of um, a lot of resilience in really difficult times. So And some capacity to to um, wind back the really harsh aspects of the law or to have some kind of positive impact. So that's, that's why I'm there. Yep. And Homeless Law at Justice Connect has a couple of core missions, right? Yeah. What are those two kind of main things that you do there? Um, I love this. This is yeah. our mission. So these are the easy beach ball questions at the start. Yeah. No. Um, so, look, two of our, our big things. One is prevention of homelessness. So when we've got an environment where there's um, 22,000 people in Victoria who are homeless, we've got 33,000 people waiting for public housing. So what we need to be doing is stopping people slipping into homelessness because if you can keep people in housing, we need to be doing everything we can to do that. Um, so we do that through direct service provision, um, but we also do it with law reform and, and advocacy. And the other big one, and it's pretty topical at the minute, is um, the criminalisation of homelessness, essentially. So uh, the way that we're sometimes tempted to use the law to, um, to deal with homelessness and poverty um, and what we can do to, to uh, go in another direction and a more effective direction. There are two main yeah. priorities. And I think it's important to maybe state everyone here looks very, very smart and good looking. And, um, <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of people know this, but it's important to, to probably state that homelessness is not just people living in the street, is it? No, it isn't. It isn't. So of the 22,000 I mentioned, it's about 1,000 who are on the street. And it's obviously the most visible form of homelessness. It's the really pointy end of homelessness. But the, the majority of people are in a range of other inadequate, unacceptable accommodation, including in their car, uh, on someone else's couch, uh, in crisis accommodation, transitional accommodation, but essentially not having any, any safe place to call home. And um, you talked about uh, the criminalisation and like we've seen this horrible footage of, you know, uh, barriers and walls of police uh, and people being dragged off to who knows where or, you know, to, just to out of the sight of the poor people of Melbourne who have to see someone living in the street every day. Mm. Um, you ran a campaign called Asking for Change. Yeah. Want to tell me a little bit about that? Because I was that was I was really interested to read about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's, it's ongoing. It's an ongoing mission. But um, so it's a crime to beg in Victoria. Um, and it's not in a number of other states. It's not in New South Wales. But um, it is here. And while we've got it as a crime on the books, we keep turning to it. And it's how 
in Victoria we try and stop people begging is to charge them and, and take them through the courts. And it doesn't work for a number of reasons. Um, it, it really kind of kicks people when they're down. Um, it doesn't stop them begging. Um, and it, it kind of clogs up our justice system that has a, a lot of other important things to do. So um, we looked at it from a bunch of different angles and, and probably most interesting certainly from t for tonight is that a big part of it was hearing people's individual stories because I can, I can say that and I can talk about the stats. I can say we spoke with 30 people and 77% were experiencing homelessness. A third of them had been the, the um, victims of childhood abuse or trauma. So I can reel off those figures. But when you hear people themselves talking about it and what it feels like to beg, um, one guy uh, it was very simple, but he just said, every day is hard. And so we brought together a combination of those things, the stats and the evidence, and the evidence that has remained the same for 15 years. Um, and it challenges some of those ideas about professional begging. Um, uh, and, but most importantly, you hear people's own stories. Yeah, and uh, on your website, you have um, some video and audio of some of the, half a dozen of, of people who yeah. uh, have been homeless. I don't yeah. think any of them know, or a couple of them consider themselves still homeless, actually. But, yeah. um, and that made me think about relating back to the, the theme of tonight, the narrate theme. What can you do as an organisation, but also perhaps more importantly, or at least um, parallel to this, how do you help people who are ha homeless or have been homeless mm. reclaim the narrative of, mm. of, of what homelessness is? Because popular culture or mainstream culture or you know, the media like to put it into a pretty neat category of like homelessness is a, you know, the fault of the, uh, the person who is homeless or there must be something wrong with them or it must be something to do with as long as it's nothing to do with us as long as we're not culpable yeah you know those videos are really powerful like um and hearing you know firsthand that just a couple of minutes of someone telling you their story that's obviously one um one small thing you can do but mm. do you find that it's just a mixture of media and and, and campaigns that help reclaim this narrative or mm. how do you go about that um, look, it's it's a it's critical that um, the the voice of people who have lived through homelessness or are currently homeless um, are heard amongst these conversations, and that we don't descend into this situation where it's a lot of service providers and lawyers and government decision makers talking about people experiencing homelessness. Um, and there's a range of different ways that those voices can be heard, and and. One is is through this use of storytelling and making sure people um, are, are telling uh, and explaining their situation from their own perspective. And and the project you mentioned um, that was that was a long time coming. So we'd been talking about that that issue, and it again is this issue of um, using fines for public drunkenness, for begging, for not having a ticket on the train or tram, and how if you're homeless and you're living your life in public space, you get caught up in that system. Um, and we'd been talking about it for years, probably for a decade at that time. Lawyers had been, government had been, um, but who hadn't been was the people who themselves had been caught up in that system. And so that was a project that was caught in the public eye and it was six people who told their stories, some on video, some audio, some written, and they said in their own words what it, what it was, what it's yeah. like. Um, that was actually the Attorney General at the time um, came to the launch of those stories and I think it, it was really important and we think um, it had some role to play in significant improvements in the law from that point. Um, so, look, that's one way. I think a lot of you here tonight will have seen there was, um, there was an element of activism in relation to the Flinders Street 
um, situation as well. And I think it's it's controversial. I think it um, did push um, public sympathy. Where, to the extent there was some public sympathy for that situation, I think when it became mixed in with um, activism in some way, that, that public sympathy diminished. But I think it is important to remember that they shouldn't be mutually exclusive. So being homeless um, and having a really rough time of things and also having a, an active or, or political voice, um, both those things can coexist. Now, that is not to say that everyone or even many of the people at Flinders Street were, were playing that role. Most of them were just sleeping on the streets like the other 247 people in the city of Melbourne. But I think for maybe for more academic purposes, it's important to remember that you can, you could play both those roles. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to hear you say that like the activism that occurred self-defeating or something, because it's interesting because people like to think that they are, you know, that that is the, the one saving grace of any campaign is to get out there and do things and mm. actually that, that can be turned into against you somehow. Um, what do you know for a fact does help? Like, in your experience of many, many years, what are the kind of couple of key things, I mean, it's probably more than a couple, but the mm. key things that really turn things around for individuals and then prevention for future homelessness? Yeah, yeah. Um, so in terms of, of addressing um, rough sleeping, um, we do know what works and it works internationally and it works here and we're already doing it. It's just... It's not an immediate solution, but it, it will work. And it's called, there are different names for it, housing first, street to home, essentially recognising that you need a roof over your head before whatever else is going on in your life can be sorted out. Um, and so we've got good programs here in Melbourne and it's about assertive outreach, engagement, building trust, but importantly, moving people into long-term housing. So not into a, a boarding house or the Coburg Motor Inn, but into a, a long-term home. And then with support, because it's not as simple as just having a, a roof over your head, then you, you need some support to keep that housing. And that that really is what works. It It isn't rocket science, but it does require time and it requires investment and it requires us not to become distracted by the kind of quick fixes that are just um, dispersing people or moving them out of sight. Mm. And what can, if anyone here is sitting here tonight saying, you know, oh, what can I do to help this kind of thing? Because I, you know, I do think about this stuff, and, and I do know. And maybe this day and age, we do think, you know, liking a Facebook page mm. or signing a petition, and that can kind of relieve the guilt that mm. is naturally there from from encountering it, in, whether it's in person or in the news. What, what, like, I imagine it's probably a um, a bit of a smorgasbord of of, of approaches. Mm. But are there any particular things you would encourage an individual to do that make more difference than others? Look, it is a smorgasbord, but I, I think don't discount the importance of conversation and that counter-narrative. I think the media, um, well, one particular aspect of the media campaign was quite unrelenting in recent weeks and there were very, like, it was rare to hear a counter-narrative even amongst people you wouldn't have expected to have taken such a hard-line approach. So I think the importance of conversations and, and building understanding and awareness, it, it is critical. Um, but in terms of more, more practical things, there's a bunch of organisations doing great work um, that you, you could volunteer with as well um, from a kind of arts perspective, kind of well-informed, compelling written work is always great. So Thanks so much. Um, we have Adele Varka coming up next, but thanks, Lucy.
Hi Adele. Hello. Looking extremely fabulous. Thank you, Lucy. <laughs> Um, so we'll just launch right on into it. Um, I like I think most of us here have spent a, a day, a strange day of researching a lot about the people that we'll be speaking to and just I think so refreshing and enlightening to learn about amazing work that other people are doing that's not in your own little box. But um, one, of the, one of the first things I thought really was that you're working in fashion um, and it's it's an area that maybe sometimes is seen as creative and beautiful but a bit more superficial and yet you occupy this incredible role where you look at fashion and not how it makes you look necessarily but how it makes you feel or how it makes you connect with other people. So can you tell us, just tell us more about that and how you came to be occupying what is probably a slightly different role in the fashion world? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So... I think it all went back to a time when I read this amazing book by a woman called Yunia Karamura, and she writes about fashion being something that is a belief that exists in our mind, and she also separates fashion, clothes and dress as being three completely different entities. And I think this way of talking about fashion really got me thinking and completely changed my practice and the way that I... Uh, make clothes and engage with people and, and all kinds of things. But it also led to wearing these jumpsuits that I've been wearing for the past five years. But I did recently do a wardrobe swap with a man that I met in, in New York for eight months. But then we swapped back and now here I am back in the jumpsuits. So, and I'm not missing them. Is he missing his jumpsuits? No, he wrote me a confession letter saying that he said he enjoyed the swap, but he, did, he didn't wear them every day. And he slowly started to pull them down and to wear them as sort of leggings. Eating. And, he's, and he wore a bum bag. Because actually, this is Revealing. a loose, Yes, but the ones, <laughs> the ones that I usually wear are much tighter. They're lycra. They're a little bit more sort of like a superhero fashion suit or something. But I've actually got one here if you want to give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> I, brought a, I brought a selection. I brought a baggy one in case baggy, you want. Okay. I think a baggy one, yeah. Um, just the preview. I'll show you the... Do I need my shoes off? This is, this is, the, tight, this is the tighter tighter fitting one. Um, but I'll get out the bag. Get the baggy one, oh, I think, yeah. <laughs> could do a swap. I've got change rooms here too if we want to. <laughs> I might, I'll, maybe I'll ask my next question while the change it's easy. But I, and I, yeah, here we go. This is the lo looser fitting one. <laughs> um, but I guess, I guess it's not really, the jumpsuit for me is really a tool. It's not so much the jumpsuit itself that I'm, I'm really interested in, but how it brings about like social interaction, conversation, curiosity. I meet all these, kind of, these people on the streets, have conversations at the traffic lights on the way here. Um, a guy said he wanted to be bedazzled. So, <laughs> so it's, really, it's really interesting how what we wear can completely transform our everyday life experience and how... Did you need help? Well, well I need... Modesty, I think, is what I need. You can put it over that. Do you want to put it over the dress? We can put that inside. Here we go. We'll put it inside. Yeah, there we go. It's very nice. It's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> we 
I should have worn something slightly more slim fitting. We didn't know this was going to happen. I think we should be clear. <laughs> I don't think it's see through. I think you're right. Okay. Yeah, that, that'll. But I feel like I'm not doing this beautiful outfit justice, but. No, that'll do. No, you look great. I thought I'd bring that as a backup plan just in case. Yeah, it's a great one. Well, it fits well. Looks cute. <laughs> the best. The best. Um, well, that actually, I am quite, I'm quite thrown, I've got to say. This is, this is the power. I think this is, this is the, this is the power of clothing and also, yeah, how it can really, you know, affect the way you feel and, you know. You, it does. I yeah, feel different, for yeah. sure. For sure. <laughs> um, that did, with the, the learning about your wearing of the jumpsuit, and mm. it made me think, I had read articles about it before that were uh, people who wear the same thing every day. Not that your, yours aren't the same, but it's kind yeah. of removing that um, thinking or decision-making from what you wear. They are all men for the most part. So some of the big examples were Mark Zuckerberg, Obama apparently, and and Steve Jobs with his black mm -hmm. TVs. Um what do you think of that in terms of any difference between what you're doing and what they were doing? Yeah, absolutely. I'm fascinated by that because that for me is also another thing. It's just to pick a colour in the morning. Uh, but for me, I think the difference is these these jumpsuits can usually be seen as the clown or the outcast or the joker and or a costume or so i think they bring up all kinds of conversations around fashion dress and clothes and and also what what role those things play in our lives and that perhaps these these garments um, are, are more than costume but something that can really you know impact our our, our life, our everyday life. And I think that, you know, something like Steve Jobs, that, that's Normcore. And I guess I, when I did the clothes swap with this guy, I experienced Normcore mm. and it was a very different experience. And he's, strangely though, his wardrobe was all from Uniqlo, um, four grey V-neck T-shirts yeah. and black jeans. So I was, I was primarily mm. in those clothes. Um, so it was another version of, of this but it was a norm core version and I had people coming over and saying, hey, and I looked at what they were wearing and they were in the same clothes. <laughs> so I think you have a really different engagement and mm. interaction. So, yeah, you, you <laughs> that. That, that was my wardrobe, what this guy's wearing. <laughs> um, but yeah, and maybe we would be, you know, maybe we would connect on a deeper level if I was back in the norm core clothes. So... Oh, he that. was in this. Oh, if you were yeah. in this. This one's got on offer. <laughs> well, I think it's fascinating how, and even when you think about your friends, how maybe mm. they dress similarly yeah. to you, but I think I had different friends or pe people that I was having conversations with in comparison to the jumpsuits. Yeah, so yeah. it did change your, your interactions, even absolutely. who even who you were speaking with, yeah, not just what you were speaking about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even I was writing my thesis at the time and I was writing in there thinking, okay, like who who am I without the jumpsuit? Who is he with the jumpsuit? Who am I in his clothes? Am I now him? Am I an imposter or is he an imposter? You know, so it was sort of, it was this weird, it was more than our clothes that we were swapping. Yeah. Mm. Um. And I have sometimes thought about that from the perspective of 
my clients. So I know there seems to be a big, um, a lot of the judgment and a lot of the decision making around homelessness is about appearance and what it looks like in the city, but also judgment around what people themselves look like. And I think you would have some insights on kind of that perception and your aesthetic and how people perceive you and interact based on those kinds of ideas. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think this is something we touched on, touched on earlier. earlier. <laughs> I'm talking a lot about this this wardrobe swap, but anyway, yeah. um, it took me eight months to find this guy James to swap wardrobes with. And before, because I mean, it is a it is a commitment wearing you know one of <laughs> one of these one of these numbers for. You know, it was a minimum one month, I said, but we ended up doing it for eight months. But it, it's a commitment every day of your life, no matter, you know, to work, to weddings, no matter where you're going, you're in this. But um, how, I did you, how did you find him? Um, at a bar. But the other, <laughs> the other potential was actually a woman who wrote to me and she told me that she was homeless and she felt that doing this swab um, would change her life and would give her a new potentially, you know, uh, a fresh start in mm. some way. So she was really interested in it and how it could could do that for her. So we had a really long conversation. Um, and just because it would change, the, yeah, the way people interacted with her or perceived her and also maybe yeah. how she felt about herself, which is yeah. something I'm also really interested in. And there are programs that um, fitted for work is one where it's women who've been out of work or haven't entered the workforce and but it, it's largely it's about skill building as well but it's also about clothing and how that makes you feel and your sense of self-worth and it being hard to get a job if you don't feel good about yourself or how you're looking mm. um, is that well, what, what ideas would you have around that or insights from your work and yeah. how it does affect what, how you feel about yourself? Yeah, and I think that's primarily based around how people respond or react to you and I think that shapes the way you feel in what you wear. So when you think about your wardrobe and the things that make you feel great, perhaps those things, okay, maybe they're made from a really nice fabric, but some of the times it's because people smile or they compliment you and say, oh, I love that dress, you look great in that, you know, and yeah. so there's these other kinds of things that become attached to those those garments. So I think the way you, you feel is, to, to me, I think it's based on the way people react to you. And I think I've really thrown myself into that by wearing the jumpsuits because sometimes the reactions most of the time they're positive and fun and funny but other times they can be laughter or you know it could be it could be called abuse mm. but uh and I've done and I and I've started like documenting these moments by by drawing and sketching these these comments and and things um people say and it's really interesting to sort of start to expand you know, it's the story yeah. around that. And um, now that I'm making them into wraps and I'm presenting one at High Risk Dressing on the 16th of February, so at the des Design Hub. So everyone come down. It's like I'm spruiking now, but I am. Yeah. And um, also Robert Buckingham's in it too with the FDC. So that's going to be really interesting, like some contemporary fashion designers. Um, so, yeah, come on down there too. So thanks, that's Lucy. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Come on up, Jewel Gardner. Welcome. I'm sure that won't fit me. 
Where's she gone? Lucy, that's yours to keep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hello, Jill. Thank Hi there. So I was I was loving researching you and your practice and you know you've you've done a lot. You have done a lot. And I've actually I got carried away and I wrote 12 questions and I know that we have a short amount of time, but I thought we could roll the dice and you could pick a number between one and 12 and I could, I could ask oh, you that yeah, question. Sure. I, I actually... Is that what you want to tell me? Yes. Yeah, well, actually, look, what I was going to say is what was interesting is I was thinking about this question of narrative and I realised that all of the things I was thinking about were related to architectural practice. And then I was reading the kind of, um, you know, who's here tonight on the way... And I realised I'm here as a Victorian government architect, which is a whole different hat, really, to the idea of being in practice. Yeah. So um, I had to add a little extra bit going, you know, that's yes. another part of my, um, yeah, of my life, which is actually, you know, there was a discussion about the, um, you know, the stories you tell in politics, which are very different to yeah. the stories that actually are part of your, um, you know, the real you. Okay. So... Uh, you ask me anything. <laughs> okay, we can... We'll see how it goes. All right, so what, what number are you going to pick? Oh, I'll go for um, number two. Number two. Okay. So this is actually goes back to the Robin Boyd house, your friend's house that was designed by Robin Boyd. And, and I have a question around that. Yeah. Okay. Is this... Are we... Are we yep. Okay. Yep. So, if you were to redesign this house, what would you do better? I think that's a very difficult question, particularly in the in the um, perhaps in the scenario of us talking about narration, a, okay. a narrative. Can I talk about the narrative of yes. the house? Yes, yes, sure. Because <laughs> I think what that actually touches on that that story touches on what architects do a lot when they. Um, when they start a design, when they meet a client, when they get the client's story, mm. and they get the story of the site, every architect kind of needs inspiration from something. You know, there's, there's some, um, you know, something that allows you to put pen to paper. And that, that house, the reason that story is there is that uh, um, that particular house, which is a very special house, which sadly is no longer there, I um, w walked into for the first time and... I was obviously quite taken with the, the way the house was designed. And my friend at the time just said to me, wow, not many people come in here and are, and are a little bit, you know, their jaws don't necessarily hit the ground. It, it was very modest. But she said to me, are you interested in the story of my house? And I actually went, uh, look, sit me down and tell me the narrative. And she actually told me the story of her family, being a friend of Boyd's, of the the process of design, the fact it was designed around a pear tree and all of these kind of um, great pictures of, of um, where inspiration comes from, I suppose. And, and that quite seriously was probably the first architectural experience I'd ever had. And I, I kind of went, oh, I'd really like to do this and I reckon I could do it. So I probably wouldn't redesign it. Because yeah. it actually the story of how that was re was designed in the first place is a resonant story mm. that was actually um, you know and the design response was a beautiful response to it. Mm. So it seems like narrative is also quite present in your design philosophy. 
as well. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that too. Yeah, look, it, it's probably um, embedded in most architects' work, I think, and, and in thinking through the way we use narrative architects generally, you use it in a whole lot of different ways. You use it to inspire you to, yep, how do I start a design? You use, we have a very interesting fraternity of architects in Melbourne where we um, know a lot about each other. We see each other in uh, circumstances which are not always, um, you know, things to be proud of. Mm. Sometimes they are. So there's a whole narrative attached to stories, or it could be called gossip, I suppose, about other architects. So there's sort of narratives from architect to architect. Then there's narratives about a client. You know, you might have a project with a client, you form a very special relationship, something happens and you follow the relationship, you follow the client and every time that you see that house or or if it didn't ever get built, I've got a great story about one that did in, in my history that didn't get built but there's a story attached to that which is the sort of client story mm. as well. And, and then there's also, the other thing I think is interesting is there's also a, a history rather than a story, I suppose, of architecture that each architect builds for themselves. And it's like their library of resources, their library of, of buildings that might have been built, um, you know, yesterday or they might have been built 100 years ago or they might have been built 30 years ago. And they, it becomes this repository of your design inspiration and their narratives too. And your, interestingly, your narrative is often shared with another architect. And you get quite surprised when you suddenly drop a name to an architect that you meet internationally and suddenly you, it's like wearing the same outfit. Mm. You know, if, if there's, a, there's a sensibility perhaps in design that you suddenly can talk about something that you didn't even know each other beforehand, but you've got the same heroes, I guess. And yeah, and how, what does that? How does that affect the process if you're if you're collaborating together? Does that well, well, um, in all sorts of different ways. And I guess um, if I sort of took each of those instances, if if you're collaborating with a client to produce something that's really bespoke. I mean, working in housing. If you are working in housing you are designing something that is very particular to a family or a person or um, you're maybe building something to house their personal art collection or you might be... Some people have fabulous wardrobes and their whole focus is on where every piece of their wardrobe goes. So you get to know people extraordinarily intimately. Mm. So the stories of um, collaboration, um, the client can't pick up the pencil because they... They don't know how to do that, but they, they talk to you mm. and you kind of interpret their stories. Um, so that's that's one sort of part of the narrative. And how about risk? What do you feel is the, the biggest risk that you've taken in your practice? Uh, I, I <laughs> actually, you take risk a lot because you have to, um, you know, one of the difficult things about architecture is that um, you're stuck with it. You know, we, I can't put, I can't sort of hide my mistakes. I can't um, pulp, you know, pulp the, the, um, the design because I made a bit of a botch of it. Mm. You're actually the incredible responsibility of designing something, documenting it, hoping it will work in terms of 
technical capacity, uh, all of those, those uh, the realities of building, mm. getting on site, watching it be built, hope the space is what I thought it was going to be and having a client walk into it and say, this is, this is either exactly what I thought it would be or I'm terribly disappointed or this exceeds my expectations and you have all of those three kind of scenarios. Mm. So it's every building you do feels to me like a huge risk because you actually, yeah, you can't pulp it. It's there and, um, you know, I was saying before that uh, every now and then you can hide when you, luckily when you start, you're often building behind, you know, in people's back gardens and, uh, and uh, bef behind fences so hopefully people don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and then you kind of learn from the things that you maybe didn't do quite as well as you would have liked to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So why do you do what you do? Uh, I guess, I mean, architecture is an amazing process. It's really serious. Yeah. It's, um, it's absolutely, uh, it's about, it's not just about an image. It's about space and it's about an experience of space. It's about light. It's about um, volume. And it's, it's the sort of thing that I suppose my personal feeling about it is I can walk into a building and it moves me in the way that, you know, Sam would be moved by a piece of poetry or by a piece of literature. A building will affect me in that way and, you know, the way that you might be affected by a piece yeah. of clothing or, or how our previous speakers might be affected by, by a, a, a piece of art. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm really affected by great buildings and, um, you know, I think it's a little like hoping that you might one day, you know, do the great Australian novel. You, you try really hard with every building that you do to do the best you possibly can and every now and then you do something that's great. Um, you do a whole lot of ordinary stuff along the way too. There's a lot of buildings built and not a lot of them use architects. You know, there's mm. a, a lot of buildings that just appear, if you like. Um, to kind of go back to that question, why I do what I do, what I've, what I've kind of stepped into now is, is this role of, um, as well as practice, so I actually still run my practice, but at the same time I have this part-time role where, where I advocate within those political environments mm. to really try and convince government, if you like, that what they build, when they build a, a building that's a public building that's occupied by the community, that it's actually the best that it possibly can be and that it's not dictated by budget, it's not dictated by expediency, it's not dictated by giving the job to somebody that, you know, is their cousin's brother. Mm. It's dictated by skill and vision and, um, and the idea that when we build something in our city, we've got to love it now and we've got to love it in a hundred years' time, and that's mm. that's a really, really significant commitment. Yeah. And I guess my yeah my I see my role in government. There's a lot of narrative attached to that. It's um, it's it's a different type of narrative. It's not storytelling. What it is is convincing government in strange words to me because that's not my background. Um, you know, what's the benefit? of doing this? You know, what's the value to the to the community of building a building that we're going to love in 100 years? Yeah. That we don't think we have to knock down and we don't sort of 
you know, knock ourselves on the head in 10 years' time and say, well, what the hell were we thinking when we thought that was a great idea? Mm. So to kind of steer them away from those sorts of decisions. Yeah, great. Thanks, Jill. Thank you. Yes. And uh, welcoming Karen Becker. I think we've come full cycle. We're back, we to, our, back to our host. Um, I'm really delighted to be given the task to um, hand the M baton <laughs> on here. Um, you're really well known in the work that you produce as a writer and you, you sort of cross the boundary between, um, between d architecture, interior design, uh, industrial design, I would call it, you know, product design, th those sorts of, um, that breadth that, that comes under the banner of design. Um, I, um, I know that, um, you know, I've been talking about narrative in, in architectural terms. I think most architects are really appalling writers. <laughs> I think they try really hard to kind of be, be evocative and, uh, and um, interesting but I think you know we've got a, a language of architecture which is uh, sometimes inaccessible to the general public um, what I think you come from an arts background I understand with and and as like a real writer's background what what's made you head into being a writer that talks about architecture and talks about design well it's interesting because I started off as a magazine editor and there you're kind of curating um, different styles, different looks, different, you're commissioning um, and you're pulling it all to get together into a product that you hope to sell. Um, and when I started to do books, so my first book was Iconic Australian Houses, 50, 60, 70, and I knew very little about architecture. So I also was very aware that architects might think I was a complete lightweight. And um, so all I did was ask questions and architects loved that because they could answer the questions. So we were all happy, we're all in a good place. And then I made a terrible mistake one time of kind of over-researching and, and so asking these long, complicated questions. And, and the architect who was sort of probably then in his 80s just would go, yes. And so I would get nothing. So I learned you, you throw out the question and it's more about drawing out from them. <laughs> and then expressing it in a way that is accessible to people. Because as you say, a lot of it is kind of archy speak. And I had one particular architect, I'd read a book of his, and I'd read the foreword, and I'd read this particular um, paragraph many, many, many times. And then when I interviewed him, I went, look, I've read this so many times, I can't kind of unpick the narrative of this one. Um, can you tell me what it means? And he read it twice and he went, no idea. <laughs> And so I thought then, well, <laughs> well, actually, it's much better to just be sim correct but simple in your language. Um, and, and that was a great thing for me because the communication then is much more... Um, people understand it. And actually, architects often quite like their work being described that way. I think there's a peer-to-peer -peer thing where sometimes they feel it's got to be more um, intellectual. Yeah, interesting. Um, I, I, your, your, the two houses books um, are, are fascinating books. You know, they document two periods, I guess, um, 50s, 60s and 70s and 70s, 80s and 90s. And they're, they're really important mm. documents, I think. They capture some, um, 
you, you call them iconic houses. Mm. They, I don't quite like the word, but they are. They're kind I hate of hate the word. <laughs> But it was 10 years ago, and now every single, you know, development yeah. in Western it's Sydney iconic. is iconic. Of course. You know. um, yeah. But in a funny way, it gave it a sort of significance, you know, to put, you know, here are 15 really good houses. Yeah, agreed. It doesn't have quite the same no, resonance. It is so, it, it is mm. so true. Mm. Um, and, and I have to admit, I actually... Um, particularly the 50s, 60s and 70s one, I um, I often give that to staff members that I've mm. had through my office because I I think it's a snapshot of some amazing um, thinking in, mm. in Australian architecture and and it allows those people to, uh, those, those usually recent graduates, to actually understand an era of architecture that they don't see mm. and to actually understand, you know, I talked before about the the lineage of, uh, of reference that architects have and to actually see a lineage perhaps of, um, of housing that comes through, Austra mm. you know, through Australian housing, which is absolutely fascinating, and the sort of, you know, the difference between the Sydney model and the Melbourne mm. model, those sorts of uh, narratives that come through the book as well. Um, why housing? Why did you choose housing <laughs> well, I as think, a topic? Well, I think, you know, coming from a lifestyle context, which was all about interiors, housing I felt very comfortable with. Um, and, and I started off um, with our own house, which is a Bruce Rickard sort of 60s house. Um, <coughs> and that I felt I could kind of understand. And in me understanding it, could ask questions of it. I, I've never done a book or any work around commercial or whatever, because that feels to me like a whole other other world. There's something about the human scale, the intimate nature, the functionality of um, a residence that as a lay person, um, albeit in a self-educated lay person, I can get my head around. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, the, the interesting thing about today's topic, about the idea of there being a, a, a story that, that might go with a, a design, um, you know, that's it's a whole other element. Every, mm. every one of those houses would have a kind of a backstory yes. that goes to them as well, which is is um, also something that's that's quite forensic in terms well, of um, <laughs> it's a very good it. point because it sort of relates also to its social context. You know, the house we lived in, the bricks were sourced from um, uh, uh, the um, Sydney where um, building was going on. Um, people couldn't find bricks, so they drive around buying a few here. So a lot of the expression of the buildings was driven by the economic and social circumstances of the time. So it's a bit like Eric was saying at the beginning, nothing exists in isolation. It kind of is a product of design thinking, but of also of its social context. Yeah, that is absolutely true. Um, I, I mean, we... Uh, it occurs to me that really uh, people, you know, Australians love their houses. So I actually, I get it. It's a very accessible mm. and much loved product of architecture. And, and I often think we're really lucky in Australia because we're actually, um, we architects are able to test our, our skills or, or otherwise um, on, on, um, on houses for our, our first few clients. And I, I think that doesn't happen in a lot of places in the mm. world. You know, there's a lot of um, places in the world where architects don't get to build till they're in their 50s. So we've actually got quite a, um, an, an interestingly different environment where we, we as a profession are able to, to test on our friends, 
relatives, well, I mean, it's all that sort of stuff. Me. When I first came to Australia, the idea that people bought houses and land and knocked them down, I mean, that was quite a... I was a bit, oh, really? This happens? Mm. You know, so you forget that coming from Europe where a thing is a fixed thing and people might do additions or fix things, but they don't actually knock it down and change it very often. So that culturally is a very... It's both good and bad in that a lot of things that are precious in some way... Um, you know, or given the flick. Uh, I think I absolutely agree with you. I think there, there's some really good things about it. Um, there's some really bad things because I, I'd go so far as to say, you know, if we step into the, a discussion about public buildings or buildings that uh, need to be there for a really long time, mm. um, we do still have that slightly, um, you know, that slight mentality that it's okay if it's made out of uh, tin or whatever, mm. <laughs> you know, and maybe we can just replace it. Whereas... I, I, you know, the the model of actually occupying a place and changing use and uh, and and changing changing the way it's kind of labelled, if you like, occupied and and, um, and and just it's there as a building for longevity. Mm. It's quite a different. Um, well, it requires more ingenu ingenuity and it requires more, um, you know, because often these buildings aren't fit for purpose, but actually if you think, if, if it, you legislate for it and then you have to do it, people do end up coming up with pretty inventive solutions. Yeah, um, it, it's an incredible challenge. It's one mm. of the great challenges of architecture really is um, is really inventive and and uh, and clever, mm. the invention of of. Buildings that actually have got good bones, I call them, mm. because there's a lot of buildings that do have good bones that probably shouldn't be knocked over. Mm. Um, what, what, um, what, what I was going to ask you from your housing books, um, and I wasn't aware that you'd stepped into the, um, the realm of exhibitions, mm. and I was going to ask you the question of, of, um, about space, because to me, architecture is about space. It's about the experience of light and shadow and it's very three-dimensional. Mm. So how do you... Um, how, what's your process for kind of... Um for exhibiting, can it's can hard actually because we really, you know, there's budget constraints. Also, we didn't want it to be um, so. We did an exhibition around iconic Australian houses, which is sort of travelling Australia, um, mostly um, regional Australia, and then we did one with super houses as well in the Museum of Sydney. And so there's this concern: you don't want to just do a book on the wall because people can go, "I'll just buy the book." You know, they're just bigger. Um, but what was really fantastic about the iconic Australian houses was a lot of those um, architects, um, as you pointed out, you know, they're old and to capture their voices. So we did a kind of really great video and, and there's something about people who are at the end of their career. They're prepared to be incredibly honest, like P Peter McIntyre, who did that sort of house when Melbourne was very into its geometry. Maybe it's never stopped being yeah, into frame. its geometry. Yeah. Um, but he said, actually, it was really crap house to live in. It was really hot in summer, really cold <laughs> in winter. And so there's something so refreshing about being at that stage of life where you can uh, admit to the failures as much as the successes. So we, we captured those voices. We had some models made. Um, we did a talk series around it. So, um, I mean, this is in a way what I was asking Eric earlier, you know, the challenges in terms of in engagement 
of something that is, you know, we had the wonderful photographs from the book, but that was kind of the starting point. And I had to learn about how to communicate, not in a 2,000-word chapter, but, you know, in a in a 80-word, you know, sum it all up, and people look at it at this height and not at that height. And so yeah. it's all narrative, it's all communication, but it shifts a lot in terms of how you do it. Yeah. Um, in, um, in meeting the architects... Um, for, for some of those houses, a lot of whom are still alive and um, and a lot of whom are, well, some aren't, but, but they're very, um, well, even the ones from the 50s and 60s mm. and 70s, they're very well-loved houses. Mm. They're, they're, they're people who were, um, you know, in their own right, were architects who had iconic uh, personalities, mm. a lot of them, and I'm sure you would have found that in those that you actually spoke to. And there's some great, you know, I always think there's some great narrative that goes within a profession and I'm sure this exists within the lawyers and the doctors and, you know, every profession where where groups of uh, like-minded individuals get together. Um, you know, capturing those moments before you lose them, those statements mm. before you lose them, seems, you know, we're a very young country, really, but we're quietly losing our our early architects and we're losing the architects who actually really impacted um, the way that, that we've continued our, our architectural design. And you know, what was interesting, because I came from a kind of more lifestyle background, I could ask those questions that were a bit, um, you know, like I, I interviewed Timothy Hill of Donovan Hill, who's a very good very good architect and very um, erudite. And and so <laughs> I asked him at the end uh, of his interview, you know, he, he had a house called the D House. And I said, oh, you know, I felt like a bit like I was asking him what his favourite colour was or what his star sign was. And I said, you know, what does D stand for? And he said, oh, there were Italian builders working opposite and they were looking at this house and they said, oh, that's the kind of house we would build for our donkeys. <laughs> So, so, you know, so suddenly you had a hook of something that had some humour that had, yep. you know, and, and those are the moments that then allow people to remember that. And so the way I write is very much about finding those stories yeah. and finding that hook that makes that it, that pulls people in. Mm. Um, and, you know, I've had I've done all those books and, you know, people have had them for three years and they go a wet weekend I started to read it it's quite good actually you know so you know we know yeah. that the, the the visual communication is the photography and it's but actually stories when they get great. to the stories yeah. they've got to be good and they've got to yep. deliver something really of value very much so okay I think that's it I think we're out of time lovely thank you thank you now I have a quick summary I have to, to leave you up no, here. No, 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 you stay here. I need some company. Um, so when I thought it was two and a half hours, when we were coming over here in an Uber, my daughter was going, how long does this last? And I said, it's two and a half hours. And I thought, well, that is actually quite long, but it's gone so quickly because everybody's stories have been so wonderful and everybody's interviews and the different disciplines, the way people have interacted. And I only feel grateful that I didn't have to get into a jumpsuit. That's all very good. So I have Me actually too. kept a few notes and whether they're coherent in any way after two rosés, you'll just have to bear with me. So I will wrap through them. So I wanted to start with Eric, who I loved talking to, and I really felt that in essence it was his new perspectives that will lead M Plus to great new heights. You know, the way he 
um, took this idea of untold stories and he could shine a light on those and expand on those, but also looked at new ways of telling existing stories. And that to me was very powerful. And then the wonderful Sydney, is it Sydney? Candy even, not Sydney, Candy. <laughs> who I've written is a wonderful I've written you're a wonderful walking innovation of your own making and I love the quote that art is seeking outside of yourself and the next time I do a talk in my northern Irish accent I'm going to say good evening bitches <laughs> so there you go and then I loved Lisa's Lisa's ability to blur being the audience and the artist that was really and I loved her this kind of power of the uncertainty and, and the fact that um, you know her art is from getting on the fucking bus there you go um, and Sam who I'd <laughs> looked into his work a, a lot and I, I spoke to him on the phone and I really loved this idea of transparency you know having worked for News Corporation for many years the idea that you ask people to, to, to give for a magazine what they can afford or to publish what it costs you to print and the hours that go into things to me that is utterly revolutionary in, in publishing and everything he does is um, is, is really wonderful, actually, and very inspiring. And then Lucy, the idea that criminalisation and homelessness should be in the one sentence is, is pretty appalling to me. Um, you know, life can turn on a sixpence, and I'm sure Lucy has experienced lots of stories where it just takes two things and someone who was in an okay situation is suddenly not in an okay situation, and I think that could potentially be all of us, and I, I think we need to remember that um, <coughs> with the issues that she has to deal with. And then Adele. I love the fashion clothes and dress. And I love the fact that she got some poor sod to swap with her. I mean, did you make a video? It's so brilliant, the idea that you were in, uh, he was in your clothes and you were in his. And I love this idea of clown and outcast and joking and, and who couldn't engage with you in that suit. We spotted you from about 400 metres. It was really fantastic. And then <coughs> Jill, I love that idea of going into a space and being moved by it. Because at the end of the day, that human scale in architecture, that idea that something affects you emotionally is a great power. And it's that kind of storytelling which is, 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 is kind of quite deeply felt. And I think that that as an impetus to be an architect is a very wonderful thing. So I wanted to thank all the speakers and thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you very much, Karen. That was wonderful. Great host. And thank you, everyone, for coming tonight, coming today. Uh, of course, thank you to Jennifer for coordinating mm. and selecting um, this program. And also Alan, Alan Whedon, for documenting. And all the talks have been recorded and they'll be on the M Pavilion um, video audio library. Um, so that'd be great. But uh, once again, thank you to all the speakers this evening. Um, it's been great. I hope you have enjoyed it. Um, and we'll see you again next year. Bye.